Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 979 with Randy Weinstein. Any business that I have been associated with, it was always that it was for the good of whomever it was serving at that time. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle, a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. With One Huddle, you can onboard new employees up to 45% faster. There was actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven that you can train your employees 45% faster. This just isn't fluff. This is real stuff. One Huddle, this new and improved way to educate your staff will train translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience in both front of house and back of house, i.e. menu development, just learning the menu, POS, limited time offers, food costs, things like this. To learn more, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. That's the number one in huddle like a football huddle. And when you use that link, you can get access to one huddles game shop, 3000 plus on demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. One more time, restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. This episode is brought to you by Ovation. Creating a great guest experience is the goal of every restaurant every time, but the ways to find out what's actually happening with your guests are terrible. That's where Ovation comes in. Ovation gets happy guests to leave you positive reviews and unhappy guests to share what happened. And it gives you specific ideas to improve. Ovation, it's frictionless for your guests, easy for your managers, and powerful for you. If you're interested in actionable guest feedback, visit OvationUp.com slash unstoppable. Unstoppable listeners get $100 off their setup fee. What are you waiting for? That's Ovation up.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit. It, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest founder of Fab, Randy Weinstein. Randy, are you feeling unstoppable today? Daily, I'm unstoppable. You are unstoppable. I you am. are such a help to helping us come to Charleston and connect with people from Charleston. If there's anybody who knows the Charleston restaurant scene, 
better than you, I, I doubt there are, I, I doubt there's anybody who knows it better than you. Oh, there's people out there. <laughs> uh, you were, you know, you were with the, the food and wine, uh, Charleston food and wine, wine and food. Sorry. Thank you. Wine and food mm-hmm. festival. Uh, so you were d- d- the director of that for how many years? Seven years? A director of events and logistics. Okay. For how many years? Seven years. Right? For seven years. Seven years. So yes. you, you gave me a list of people that I should talk to and you were really great with helping us connect with people here in Charleston. So before we get into the interview, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Um, you make things happen. You really do. And with that being said, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Success quote or mantra. It has to be just ask, just ask. What do you mean by that? Just ask for help. Ask if you want anything. Ask, just ask. You don't know if you don't ask. Um, I am relentless about it. Beautiful. Great way to get this thing started. And I think it's even, it's like a living testament. Like you just asking people when I came to town, if they would participate with restaurant unstoppable and like, I don't know, it just works. Like, but you'll never know unless you ask. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so just ask, don't be scared. Give me an example of where just asking kind of helped you or served you. I bet you have. A good oh my God. And anything, everything that I do. Um, if I have an idea and I think that I could see it, um, I will ask people their thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. Happened with fab happened. I mean, throughout it's an icebreaker, it is an icebreaker and it's also gives you validation that, you know, you have something that's tangible and that's going to work. So, um, yeah, I think that's what it is. Cool. Awesome. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? I know you've been a part of restaurants the majority of your life. You're from New York City, correct? Um, Long Island. Long Island. Lived in the city and then moved to Charleston. Okay. So what were you doing in your early days? Well, there's a lot I probably can't discuss in my early <laughs> days, but... Um, I own. Were you getting into trouble? <laughs> so much trouble, <laughs> so much trouble. I know there's a reason why I liked you. Yeah, there's so much trouble. Some of that still follows. But <laughs> um, I was born and raised in a garment center family, and my dad manufactured men's and women's clothing, and I worked in retail until I got smart, and then I started working in restaurants. Um, front of house, always all front of house, never any back of house, bartending, waiting, hostessing. And um, then after that, I had gone to college at Northeastern, transferred to Fashion Institute of Technology, and started working in the garment center in a children's accessory showroom. And I later took over that showroom and bought it. And when I was... 21. And, um, and I was owned that with my sister for a number of years until I wound up moving to Charleston. So I'm curious when you were saying you moved uh, away from the family business and into restaurants, you said you got smart. What do you, what did you mean by that? I didn't want to work in the factory (laughs) (laughs) any longer folding and, uh, (laughs) so you were an entrepreneur really early off in life, huh? Like this is kind of this bug to create has been a part of you really since you're a young woman. You know, it's funny, the word entrepreneur, I feel someone had asked me not all that long ago, probably about six or seven months ago, if I am an entrepreneur, because I feel that that term is thrown around so easily these days. And 
I feel like there's a direct connotation to entrepreneur and, and making money. And then there is the entrepreneur that is someone who might be creative and has ideas, but hasn't parlayed into the financial aspect of it. So when I look at entrepreneur and I think about entrepreneur, I think about someone actually who has that direct correlation of making a lot of money and then can actually go from business to business and that's what follows them. So if you ask me if I feel like I'm an entrepreneur, I feel like I'm a person that has a lot of ideas <laughs> and, uh, and that I will ask people their thoughts about it and um, see if I can parlay that into just being successful, not yeah. necessarily making tons of money because that... Is- I, I see that. And I think I, I can see, I think over time where I've experienced, I, I feel like entrepreneurism is kind of evolving to be not just like fiscal, like object ob, or what's goals, not just fiscal goals, but just like impactful goals. Like I want to create a business to make an impact. Like I'm like, yeah, this comp like we need money to run a business, but the objective I think is shifting from how much money can we make to what kind of social impact can we make? Are you seeing that too? Like that shift? Yes. So maybe you, you are more of an entrepreneur than you realize, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you are making a social impact, you know, and it is a business. You are money's moving. You, you're charging tickets for the tickets, right? You know? Yes. So I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I'm actually hopeful that I think we're moving away from this idea that business is all about money. Cause it's not, I think it's, more it was never that way yeah. for me. Yeah. It was well, always any business that I have been associated with, it was always that it was for the good of whomever it was serving at yeah. that time. It's almost like the narrative is like more about their money. The, the money part of business is more about security. It's about, you need, we need the money to, to, to provide security to our people. I think that that's like a shift that's happening right now. It's like, we do need money. Like let there be no, like, like what's the word? Um, there's, don't be confused. Like we're here there's to make no money. Mistake about yeah, it. There's exactly. no mistake about it. Like, we need to make money. Well, but because we need to provide security to our people. Right. Well, it's that. And there are bills to be paid. Yeah. I um, mean, so when I was working with the festival, I think one of the best lines that um, Natalie Dupree, who is, um, she is a chef, a cookbook writer. Um, she is very involved in La Dame. She has, she's an incredible history. She had lived in, I'm fortunate that she lived in Charleston, and she was the original chair of the um, then Food and Wine Festival, and we had to change the name because we were going to be sued. Um, but I remember we had a meeting with a sponsor, and we wanted them to increase their sponsorship. And she said, well, dear, you just can't pay people with ducks. And because they were giving us product and it was the truth and yeah. I've, it's always stuck with me. Yeah. Um, but you know, there are bills to be paid and there are people that need to be paid and everyone has to be paid their worth. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know, we can get into a whole conversation about like what is money, but it's an imaginary thing. It's just a way to add value to different things. So, so there's a middle ground between what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not the, the most knowledgeable person about this, obviously, but um, it's just a way for, for 
people to have relationships. It's a common ground for people to have relationships because when you're bartering, you're, that's essentially just a relationship. I have something of value. We can trade. We, we provide value to each other. This is a win-win situation, but how do we track the value of things, right? And money was just a way to basically have relationships. That's, that's how I look at it, at least. Um, but anyway, um, so moving on your career, um, you, you started this, this company, this fabric company with your sister. And what, what happened with that? So it was a children's wholesale accessory showroom. Okay. So we were manufacturers reps for about 35 different children's lines, which I knew nothing about. I mean, I knew about it from working there, but I didn't have a child. Got it. So we were in it together. And essentially, if we did not come up, it was very competitive at that time. And if we weren't able to come up with our own line to manufacture, um, you know, the profit margins were super slim. Deliver It was just the business was changing. Yeah. There was a lot of mergers and takeovers. And so I didn't know anything about manufacturing any children's wholesale accessory product. And at that same time, I wound up meeting my ex-husband who lived in Charleston and, you know, from my um, past history or just my mantra, which is not just, I have a lot of mantras, but um, I just was like, you know what, I'm going to move to Charleston. It seemed like a good idea at the time and, you know, get out of New York. And that's what I did. My sister wound up going on to law school and I moved here. And that was probably somewhat jarring at, um, at that time. It was 1988. And you're in your early 20s at this time, right? Charleston, yes. Yeah. And Charleston is not the Charleston that you will be seeing on this trip um, that you're on. But Charleston then isn't what Charleston is today. No. What was it then? It was downtown Charleston was full of um, mom and pop businesses. Um, it was had some real quality, not a lot of restaurants, but certain restaurants that were super quality and that had a lot of history behind it. Well, this area is very affluent. I think I say there's been a lot of money in this area for a very long time. There's um, old Charleston wealth, yeah. and then there's new money that has been mixed in. So has there been a shift from the old Charleston wealth to new money over the past 30 years? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, But uh, there's still a lot of headbutting that goes along with that. Like, is that worth getting into? <laughs> um, you know, it is. It's about, it's interesting. Charleston had a mayor that was mayor for 40 years wow. here. Okay. And so, which is an extremely long time, too long for anyone to ever be in politics. And there is, you know, no one really knows what those backdoor deals truly were, but the Charleston then I mean, what really changed Charleston was Hurricane Hugo in 1989. And it changed the landscape of Charleston. And Mayor Riley, who was the mayor then. Like physically, like changed the landscape. Physically, I mean, it was, I feel that it was also one of those first hurricanes to really have, like, be this powerful hurricane, which now when you look at the strength of hurricanes, that have happened since then, they've only increased in power and disseminate so much more 
um, landscape to the communities that they hit. Charleston was, I mean, downtown was, there were areas that would disseminate it. Certainly when you get up to McClellanville and everything with, with storms is the way the wind is and the water surge, especially since we're on a peninsula. The tide plays a big role exactly. too. Exactly. And so what happened was Mayor Riley looked at the landscape and said, what should we do? And, you know, he created this waterfront area, which has now the aquarium, which is soon to have um, an African-American museum, which I am very excited about opening. Um, And it has, you know, there's tours that go to Fort Sumter. So there is this like parcel of property. And so I feel like that was good for Charleston. He had put in a lot of things at that time that were really great. But also what we are seeing now is this incredible growth without a lot of thought that has been put into um, accessibility. There is there are no um, light rails there are and the growth is tremendous so the amount of people trying to get into downtown south carolina is a is a red state right yes so i mean you see often i think i think of texas when i think of red states Lots we're not people, that bad yet well i mean there's not usually a lot of budget for public transportation because you know we're not, we're not thinking about increasing taxes for like you know what i'm saying so right i, I think i'm sure that plays a lot into it you know I I don't, I don't know. I mean, I feel that, you know, and it's Charleston so different because when you get to like now the growth is totally going to, to the North and, but Charleston itself and beyond, I mean, they've done an incredible job. I mean, truly the growth between like years ago when I was working one of my jobs, I was designated to raise $18 million for the Jewish Community Center. So I went around and did my due diligence about should we be raising this money to keep this Jewish Community Center where it is? And just because there are people that have super fond memories of it, but the landscape again of Charleston, Mount Pleasant was growing, Jewish families are moving there, not everyone was concentrated, let's say in West Ashley. And So I met with um, someone that manages the growth to look at where is this growth going? Is it going to be West Ashley? Is that where people are going to be buying houses and new families that are moving in and young families? And that wasn't where they were going to be moving. They were going to be moving to Mount Pleasant. They were going to be moving out into Somerville. And that person said to me, Jedburgh, one day will be the epicenter, almost a new downtown of Charleston. And I could tell you the way that the growth has happened, which is, you know, there is North Charleston, there's Somerville, there is now like a whole town of called Nexon, Volvo moved here, BMW is here, there's plants that are already like out that way. And they were right. And if I only invested in property and I was smart, but at the end of the day, I kiboshed the whole raising $18 million and the JCC wound up closing. And, um, but it was the right decision. And, um, because the growth isn't there. Downtown is a peninsula. 
there's only so much room downtown. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking is like you, when you drive into Charleston, even just looking at the map, like you're surrounded by wetlands. Yes. Like it's hard to grow. And you can't, you can't build. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, it's kind of like, it's probably a good thing because it, it forces Charleston to stay small. No, yeah. it, they've built like crazy. Uh, Wait till you go downtown. I mean, you're I not going to be able to, I mean, it's, it's insane. Yeah. The growth. Interesting. So, and it just becomes a challenge. I mean, yeah. there's no affordable housing for people that that are working downtown and it's gentrification at its worst. And there's, I mean, the other part of this, like when you get outside the the perimeters of the town, like again, it's wetland. So you can't, that's usually where like the working force lives is on the perimeter of the city on the edge. Right. But the edge is water. <laughs> the edge is water. So you got to go further away. That's and then it. anywhere where becomes kind of like cool and hip. Yeah is you know is then like people are moving in and then other people are that, forced out right yeah so yeah we're getting into i could talk about politics all day long just ask i'm mean, sure when you meet with him later it's a big part of what so restaurant unstoppable's mission is to inspire empower and transform the industry we talk a lot about people's stories in the rest like restaurant tours and how they got to where they are and what how their life experience shaped the people they are today and the lessons they learned and the knowledge they pay it forward but also the the, the inspire empower and transform and when i think when i say transform I'm thinking sociopolitical, you know, like I'm thinking creating awareness, providing perspective, uh, giving people different people who usually don't have a voice, a voice to share their perspective um, and just like keeping my ear to the ground. So I like talking about sociopolitical stuff. I really do. Not everybody likes to hear it. Sorry if you're one of those people no, <laughs> listening to I, this. <laughs> it is, you know, people don't. Um, but they, I also push back a little bit on the social political stuff. So, but sorry, keep going. Yeah, I mean, it is. You don't want to shove something down someone's throat, but you want people to be educated and aware, and especially. What could be the worst thing is someone that doesn't, we have a mayoral race coming up and our current mayor, I am not a fan of, and I would really love to see him replaced. So it right now for me, it's doing the due diligence, finding out who is actually in the running, whose ideas that I can get behind and then be able to, you know, in the last time that we had, or two times ago that we had a mayoral race after Mayor Riley was leaving. Um, I was working with Michael Shemtov at Butcher and B and we ran a mayoral forum specifically for the hospitality community. So you might not, a restaurant owner uh, might not be voting in this mayoral race because they don't live in Charleston. They might live in North Charleston, but their business is in Charleston. So it's just as important for anyone that has a business that is underneath this, who is running this in Charleston to be fully aware of what those politics are and to be involved monetarily, physically. And even though they might not be, what are the, for that person. I mean, the people who are listening to this podcast who are in Charleston and I, there is an influx of regionality when I'm traveling because people are more interested in, in the people in their community, right? What is the message you want to communicate to the people who might be in Charleston? Like, what do they need to be aware of? Do their due diligence. I mean, they need to be educated. They need to understand that the small local, I mean, voting is important, And people being registered to vote is important. Knowing what people are, you don't have to vote on a straight like Republican or Democratic, you know, kind of ticket. 
but there could be some Republicans, very few these days, that really have some, to me, some very solid, you know, um, ideas that want to be bipartisan, but that the real things happen in your local city governance Mm. and and town hall meetings totally and that's where so many things are decided so people just need to be educated about what is happening and do their own work Mm. um i don't think we need to add anything more to that uh but i am curious getting back to your story um because we're still, you know, you just got to Charleston, right? Just got to Charleston. Uh, on your timeline. A lot has happened since you got here, right? That was 1988 you came mm-hmm. here? Yes. Yeah. So um, what, I mean, where does it make sense to spend time talking? Like when did you get start getting involved in the food and, and, and beverage industry down here? So I think originally I befriended a lot of people at that time when I moved here. Um, I would go out a lot and it was a very small restaurant community at that time. And after that, you know, kind of all fast forward, but, um, but I had gotten divorced. I had a son and who was about four at that time. And my dad had suddenly died. And I said to myself, life is too short. Now is the time to do what I always want to do. And I always want to own a restaurant And so I helped um, Sir Matt Aslan, who is a chef, open up a restaurant, um, his namesake, called Sir Matt's. And it was downtown on King and Wentworth and a beautiful, beautiful spot. And, but it was not my time. It was not my time in life. My son was four. I was leaving at eight in the morning. I was coming home midnight or two in the morning and I didn't see him. So it just wasn't my time to do that. So I had to kind of put like that pin in that Mm -hmm. and I had to get a job that was going to give me the balance that I needed to be able to be a mom and to be able to kind of feed my own soul. Yeah. So the time now is early nineties, mid nineties in your, in your timeline. Um, where did you end up? So the first thing I did was I sold um, imprintable accessories. And that was before actually I worked for Cement. What's an imprintable accessory? Um, pens, okay. <laughs> hats, all of those things. Got it, got it. Uh, so like, like marketing and branding. Marketing and branding. There's like, lessons here though. There are lessons there. Yeah. And so I was doing that. And, and it, you have to also remember that I had come from the garment center in New York. I moved to Charleston. There is no garment center here. So I kind of feel like I lost my identity mm. at that time. Who am I? What am I doing here? This is a totally new place. And plus you're going from like New York restaurant scene to 1988 Charleston restaurant scene. Exactly. Is, yeah. Exactly. So you didn't have that really either, but you, there was some here. There was like, some. Yeah. They were also was still serving liquor in mini bottles at that time, really? which was crazy. Although my father liked it because the mini bottle was more doers than you would ever get before. <laughs> so, um, so he didn't have a hard time with that. He found that very amusing. But so after I decided it wasn't the restaurant scene was not for me at that time and being 
be able to work in it um, as my career. I wound up working with and creating, this was like a total left term, but um, with the chronic mentally ill and creating educational and recreational programs for um, a nonprofit called Palmetto Pathways. And I had never worked with that population, nor did I have a degree. And essentially what I got to do was create these opportunities in the community. And so that was really kind of my first take on going back and saying, because I had to fund my position and I had to fund all of the programming that I was doing. So I started creating events and I started dipping my toe in. Okay, this is where it started event creation and in, um, and then in involving restaurants. So that started, that was definitely the toe dip. And I created, um, a taste of James Island and I created something called contemplate awareness and I developed, or there was a national program called construction where architects would build canned, um, structures or structures out of canned and box food items. And then I donated it to different shelters or back to the people that were in my program. So this is where the, the event planning, the community involvement really starts to f- form in you. And yes. this carries over. So how long did it, how long were you doing this before really pivoting to be more fully involved in food and beverage? So I did that for about five years and I, and that's where the just ask, I mean, I ask anyone to do anything at that time. Um, I asked the Citadel who's very buttoned up, um, to provide computer classes to schizophrenic adults. Um, definitely did not expect them to say yes, but they sure did. And, um, so I did that I left there and then I decided I was going to save any teens that were overweight and, um, and start a exercise company, um, personal training company that was going to work with, um, overweight teens and have a nonprofit and have a board of teens to be able to, um, I was way ahead of my time on this, but I wanted cardiologists and pediatricians to almost write a script that these kids had to exercise. And, but I realized very quickly that that wasn't going to happen. And that as the parents run the house and without the parents' participation, that that wasn't going to, and parents were already too stretched. Well, yeah, I think too, a lot of times it's a, it's cultural where like if, if if the children aren't healthy, the parents usually probably aren't either. Right. So like, yeah, exactly. And so after that, I went back into mental health and doing community relations for a psychiatric hospital. And it was at that time that I left. I, um, I just was not happy where I was. And then I had this I had gone to the wine and food festival um, year one and I thought it was great. And I had this epiphany that that's where I should really be working. And I emailed one morning at about five in the morning, um, Angel Postel, and which is now Angel Holmes, and who was the director. 
and telling her the virtues of hiring me and why she wanted to have me as a part of her team. <laughs> and well, when, when, when was the first wine and food festival? I think they just celebrated year 17. Okay. So, so like mid 2000s? Yes. Like, like 2006, 5, okay. 6, something like that. So it was in 2007, 8 that you reached out to her. Yes. Okay. And you're sharing why all the virtues of why you needed to bring me onto your team. <laughs> Absolutely. It was like the so longest one, the longest like? email, the, the response <laughs> what from were her. were these virtues? I'm curious. <laughs> the, the virtues was that I am um, organized. I am um, hardworking and I know events yeah. and I love the, uh, this community, um, both on the food and beverage side and just the community itself. So it sounds like when you first came to Charleston, you weren't too sure about the community. Like it had to grow on you because it wasn't, it was, it wasn't what you were used to, right? It was oh, such no. a juxtaposition yes. from what you were used to. What grew on you over time that you do love this community? The ease I mean, at that point, it was just the ease of being able to be part of of getting around. I mean, I remember calling my dad one day, and I was so aggravated because I was stuck in 10 minutes of traffic, and then he did remind me of my time spent on <laughs> yeah. the Long Island Expressway. And that's how I feel, because I'm from the, the country, and like, it, like sometimes I just can't wrap my mind around, like looking at the GPS, I'm like, all right, we got five miles to go, and it's going to take us 20 minutes. I'm like, wait, is that right? How is this possible? You mm -hmm. know, like you just move much slower in congested areas. Like I can totally appreciate that you appreciate the ease of getting around. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I would literally everything was 10 minutes and I still feel that way, yeah. although it's not 10 minutes anymore, but I, that's how I feel. What else? Um, the weather, mm, I, yeah. the beaches. <laughs> I mean, there was just so much yeah. that it was, I mean, I lived in New York as much as I loved it. It was the second you leave your apartment, you were on. Yeah. And the cold weather sucked. I mean, truly just sucked. Yeah, I live in New Hampshire. I get it. Exactly. <laughs> There's a reason why I, I don't need to. I probably don't need to say suck twice. Um, <laughs> There's a reason why we go to Florida in February in Charleston in March. Mm, Florida. <laughs> Back to politics yeah. now. I'm only kidding. I, I am strategic with my traveling. Um, exactly. Yeah. So it was. So at that time, it was. And also, Charleston was really just starting to get on the map. There was one James Beard Award winning chef here, Robert Stelling, um, that had Hominy Grill. And he had won a Beard Award. And the food landscape was changing. Yeah. That's another thing that started changing well, after I, the hurricane. Yeah. I mean, this was the hurricane was in when? 97? It was in, no, it was in 89. 89. Okay. Um, I mean, the food around the time the, the Charleston Food and Wine Festival, sorry, I did it again, Wine and Food Festival started happening was when the, the smartphone came out. And the iPhone, I believe, had a huge impact on restaurants. More than like people are probably aware, because that's when social media came out. That's when not at that time though. What's that? Two thousand seven. Yeah. What do you, What are you saying? Not at that time. Not at that time. There was social media. I mean, I think that social media is a later occurrence. I mean, the iPhone was invented in two thousand seven. Um, Which gave and, you access yes. to only, I mean, you're, that opened the doors. Like that was like the, the floodgates into people sharing no matter where you are at that point. It didn't become, it wasn't about what is the person down the street doing? 
It's what's somebody on the other side of the country doing and how do I outperform that? And like it just, I think just broaden the horizon for restaurants and, and raise the bar on like what's possible. But I also think for then the wine and food festival and this community, there was a lot more attention that was brought to Southern cooking. Um, and I think that the South didn't really hold a place at that time. Uh, can you elaborate? That, you know, it was, what is this, you know, heritage rice? And uh, what are these grains? And what is Gullah food? And so all of these things that people didn't really culturally understand that were innately a part of, of being in Charleston, you know, being able to catch fish, crabs, um, utilizing like every fish, even the trash fish, as they call them. Yeah. Um, being able to have true soul food that is being cooked, um, and understanding and appreciating, um, these businesses and these families that were, I mean, like Martha Lou, who had Martha Lou's forever, um, you know, cooking collards and red rice and fried chicken and, you know, all of this food that, you know, once the festival started, which wound up creating a spotlight on some of these places. I mean, I remember the Lee brothers mentioned um, Martha Lou in an, uh, in an article and then boom, she was like flooded. Of course, it's flooded with a bunch of white people. <clears throat> so. So in 2006, the first wine and food festival, Charleston Wine and Food Festival starts. 2007, you're trying to get a part, be a part of it. Um, I'm on board. You're on board. Um, so I wormed my way in. In the narrative of social media and what was happening here, um, are you saying that people were kind of hanging on to the roots of Charleston and trying to do South Carolina food and not really worrying about what was happening in other parts of the country? Yeah. I mean, okay. at that point, um, and when I was there, I always felt that, my narrative was the people that lived in Charleston, the chefs that were participating, the beverage professionals, that was the main ingredient. Anyone we brought in was the accent. So that being what? Just like spell out what that is. That is that our restaurants that are participating, those are the people that ought to be celebrated and, and are the ones that were the shining, you know, examples of why people were coming in because they wanted to support these individuals. It was a very more localized festival in the very, in the beginning. And the mission was to highlight the people to behind celebrate the, the food yes. that was happening, to celebrate mm-hmm. what they're doing. Um, has it stayed the same ever since? It ha- When I left there um, after year nine, I was coordinating at that time um, 104 events wow. over a four-day period. And it was insane and it's only gotten larger. And they just finished this year. It was the beginning of March. And, you know, there is a new executive director, which is, this is the second executive director um, since Angel had left. And what was the, the, explain to me the people that were behind the first food and wine. Sorry, I did it again. Wine and Food Festival. It's okay. It started as um, Food and Wine and Year Two. 
Was it because of Newport? It was because of American Express and because of um, their festivals, which was called Food and Wine. Got it. And since Food and Wine Magazine is the one that also puts it on. Uh, So we had to change. It was like, what should we change it to? When did that happen? When did that change happen? That was year two. Okay, so early on. So out of the Wine and food, wine and food, wine and food. Get it right, catch Tori. Um, (laughs) Well, and the, the big problem, like anything, was once we announced that, People were so, got so crazy. They were like, you're going to put more emphasis on beverage and not enough on food. And it was like, we're just flipping the name. That's it. it. (laughs) Like (laughs) nothing else is going to change. So like, what was the, the demographic of the people who were behind the first festivals? It was an incredibly small team that was pulling off a just an insane amount of work were they mostly white they were mostly white okay i just i'm curious because you said that they were only focusing on white people right um i'm just sometimes i think people it's ingrained into us our dna to associate with people like us i think we naturally gravitate towards people like us and i don't think when some some people are I i think sometimes it gets labeled as racist when i think it's just human nature but we're starting to become aware of our human nature, and I think we're starting to compensate for it, saying, listen, like my natural inkling is to associate and to gravitate towards people like me. I need to override that because it, it isolate it leaves people out. Oh, but I don't 100%. think a lot of people do it intentionally. There is, I don't think that they are – well, I think some people do it intentionally. Some people do, but the minority, I would say, do it. But that, but I think we only hear about the minority because it's the most outrageous thing that's happening. So we gravitate towards it, and we, we – we kind of blow it up a little bit because it's so effed up yes. that we focus on it and it becomes the narrative. I would say that when we started, there was probably only four. There was Angel, there was myself, there was two other people on yeah. on the team um, contract. Yeah, I'm all for diversity. Okay. And what the festival has done, because I remember being in board meetings where the board was saying that we need more diversity not just on, and the diversity has to start on that board and, you know, having one. Because well, they're going to be aware of what's happening in exactly. different cultures and they're going to bring that to the table. Right. I don't think it's bad to not be of a culture and not understand what's happening in that culture because you don't understand it. It's not your culture. You wouldn't understand it, which is why you need to bring people of diversity in yes. to open the door and say, look. Like, here's my perspective. Here's our perspective. But that should also be natural. Yeah. It shouldn't even, you know. It should be, but I don't think it is. No, I don't Which think Which is why is. we need to override it. Right. <laughs> and I think the festival where they are now has done a really great yeah. job at diversity, not just yeah. on their on their staff, but also in participants or attendees of the festival. Yeah. So between speakers, but also between attendees. And that was something that was really hard for us to attain at that time. Mm. Um, And I think also because of the media presence that we had, it was a very white media presence as well. Yeah. Um, 
I think now's a good time to take our first break to, th- to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to pick up the conversation. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle. One Huddle is a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. One Huddle provides a mobile first approach to preparing the modern worker, a library of 3,000 plus quick burst skill games, and the option to instantly create personalized content. One Huddle is changing the way restaurants develop their workers by transforming the traditional manuals and videos into deceptively simple, highly effective mobile games proven to level up workers quickly. Let's get into some of the facts. So with One Huddle, you can onboard employees 45% faster than traditional methods. And there's actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven you can train your employees 45% faster using games on One Huddle versus traditional micro learning and video based learning. This new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience, both front and back of house, i.e. menu development, menu memorizing, POS, limited time offers, food costing, things like this. You're looking at a more engaged worker, too, because they're in competition with themselves and the entire organization. This stuff is powerful. Right now, head to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash one, like the number one in huddle, like a football huddle. And if you use that link, you can get 90 days access to one huddle's game shop, which includes 3000 plus on demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best selling books and so much more. Again, that's restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. And you have to use that link. This is a cost per acquisition agreement, meaning we get paid per lead that goes through that link. So if you are finding value in this podcast and you want to support, please use this link. And it's, it's a testament to how much we believe in one huddle that we're willing to do this. So thank you in advance. We are back. And I would like to focus. I mean, I want to continue to talk about the evolution of the wine and food festival and how it's evolved to be more appropriate with the times. Uh, also, I think you have a wealth of knowledge on just events in general and how to run, like what to consider if you want to do your own festival in your own town, because I've seen these festivals have a huge impact on just creating awareness and bringing money into a community and everyone benefits from these, these festivals, the hotels benefit, the, the, the businesses benefit, like people are buying more gas. Like everyone kind of wins when people come to your city. So I would like to hear your advice on how we could get something like this started in our own city. There's so much that I think that people need to take into consideration. And, you know, I do fab in Charleston because I have Charleston connections. And I think that I want to be able to bring people into the city that want to be able to obviously then go and spend money like you were talking about. I think in the festival realm that sometimes having something so large overruns a city and you have to remember that you don't want to alienate your community. You want them to be a part of it. And, you know, that's how the Wine and Food Festival started out. And now it is, you know, the amount of local people that attend, I don't have any current statistics, but it, you know, number one, the restaurants are overwhelmed. So they're not the ones going out and having that great time yeah. and taking advantage of all of the things. Um, 
But I think what people don't understand are the expenses and the logistics that are um, innate with running a festival. You need people to do it and people are expensive. The services they bring, the, the tools they bring are expensive. Well, it's, you know, no one, there's been so much written about um, people that are not being paid to be able to participate and ingredients and all of these things. Again, when the festival started, we also didn't have, let's say, the number of um, of beverage professionals and chefs that are now participating. So when we were running the festival, every chef always had to travel stipend and we always had their food um, ready for them and prepped in our prep kitchen. And so, and they had travel and we arranged actually all of their travel. So there is that as it's grown and as the events grew, it becomes just this beast. But when you look at when you have to put together any event, it is the rentals, okay? It is the decor. It is your um, trash, your recycling. Toilets. Toilets. um, Dumpsters. I can't help but think of, there was like, what, it was a Woodstock two or something oh like that God, where like that? yeah they just didn't plan anything they're like this is a great way to make a ton of money let's mm-hmm. throw a party and they had no like support for the people that were there like like no resources no, no water no water it was just about making money and like they they wouldn't let you bring water in nope. it was like 95 degrees that or like 100 degrees like for like three days straight or something like that anyway there's a lot of things you I love watching that yeah. and like the fry festival. Oh my God. <laughs> but the, the point is there's so much to consider. And there's so much and it's year round. I, I mean, people would always say to me, Oh my God, you have the best job, you know, it must be so much fun. And I said, it's fun, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. It's 361 planning. days of planning for four days of exactly. Of yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's hard work. I mean, I would move, downtown for 10 days because I was the first one on site and the last one off site. Yeah. So I had to build it and I had to break it down. Yeah. It's funny. People are, sometimes people like my friends are like, Oh, you only work like once a, a, once a week every month. I'm like, no, it's I'm on the road once a week every month. Right. And I spend three weeks planning for that one week. <laughs> I think everyone wants yeah. to look at someone else's <laughs> position and be yeah. like, Oh, you got it easy. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I do love my job and I do like, I'm very fortunate to be able to do what I do, but it, it, it's more work than people would think like the behind the scenes stuff. Um, but anyways, but the, I think, I think the, the food and wine festival, Damn it, I did it again. The Wine and Food Festival <laughs> um, started small, though, right? Yes. I think it's important to think that we all compare ourselves to the biggest events, and we want to do that. That didn't happen overnight. No. That happened over 17 years, 20 years, right? Exactly. And it got bigger. And every year, you learn something new, and you you prepare, and like you, you get ahead of one thing, and then you get bigger, and oh, like now there's new things we didn't consider, and you're constantly putting out fires and getting better every year, right? You have to evolve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are the biggest things people overlook? If, like, if I want to start a festival now, what's your advice for me? Start small and what else? Um, look at your home talent first and involve everyone. Try to think of things that people can participate in and be able to look at your community. Yeah, because make it you about want the that. people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? Um, be gracious. Listen to feedback. Mm. 
I'm trying to be better about this. It's harder. It's easier said than done, especially when it's your baby. Right. And it's like of your mind. It's like, it, it, like you, it, it was born from you. And then people try to get you to like change it or whatever. You're like, uh, but you, it's, you have to, you have to, yeah. I, I, my workshop relies solely on feedback. Yeah. So I'll talk about that later. Yeah. I think, um, so I think we can start to advance. I mean, is there anything else that's a part of your story and things that you think you can offer unique perspective to advice to our listeners, our, our target audience, restaurant owners and operators up to this part of your story? Anything that we were leaving out? That- no, I mean, I don't think so. All right, cool. So like you leave the Charleston wine and food festival, 2017. No, no. Uh, 15, 15, 15. No, even before that. So what was going on in your life when you started to transition out of the, the wine and food festival? So, um, the original director angel had left. There was a new director that was brought in and I truly felt that, and this was year nine. And I felt that in order for the festival to be able to succeed with a new director that was in place, because everyone would look at me in the community and either go around that individual or, um, and I just felt like if, if that person wanted to truly put their stamp on it, it was time for me to leave and that I had done my job. I've left it in really good shape. And so I wrote a goodbye email and I press send. I was in New York when I press send and my, the first person to call me, I was on the train from New York out to my mom's on Long Island and was Michael Shemtov who owns Butcher and B and says, I got your email. I want to hire you. I don't know for what, but I know I want you on my team. And I said, okay, let me think about it. Why don't we, <laughs> why don't we get together when I get back? Yeah. There's a lesson there too, that you're only as good as the people you attract onto yourself. And if somebody, you know, somebody is available and they're like, be someone's opportunity and, and that person will, you know, lift everybody around them up, you know, if they're truly a special person. And I think that this, there's a little nugget of a lesson here from, from the butcher and the bee to like grab people if they become available and you don't have to have it figured out, but it, Get them on your team and then figure out, figure it out then. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, just exactly. get the good people. And that's what Michael has always done. Yeah. And so when I got back from New York, we walked around. Um, and also having meetings when you're walking and not just sitting is ideal because it loosens people up. Yeah. But um, so we did a lot of walking and a lot of talking And I went on to his team and I think it was just at the right time at that moment in his life and in my life. What do those conversations look like? You know, what do you want to do and where do you see yourself and what are you looking for? And, you know, why did you reach out to me? You know, it's a lot of those conversations. So were you asking him these questions or we were asking both of each other these questions comes up a lot. Even when you're trying to hire, just like the first thing is like, where do you want to be? What is your goal? 
And is there a way for me to help you get there? And if you can find those win-win situations, and it sounds like that's what you were trying to do here, is just looking for the overlap, dumping out the information, the visions for each other. Does this, is there, are we going in the same direction? Can we get there together? Exactly. So he was growing his business at that time. He had one location. He was in the midst of building a, another location called the daily And, you know, Michael is definitely a dreamer, has tons of ideas. And I was that person to be able to put some of those ideas, um, solidify them and make it happen. And it was also really looking internally at his business. So you're the rocket fuel. I know the the reference. I could be, yeah, I could be, I'm the rocket fuel. Yeah. So you're a traction fan. And yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm a huge traction fan and, you need like if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a visionary person, if you're an idea person and you, you're constantly thinking of like the cool things we can do, but you're not good at making those things happen. You're, you're not, not the implementer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know the language. You're not the like, everybody needs an implementer and the implementer is a person who's good at building the stuff. If you're good at seeing what can be you need, but you don't know how to build a house. Like, you can see the house, but you can't build the house. The implementer is a construction person that's in there who's building the house. And that's what you, that's what you're doing. You're building the events. You're building the vision. Safe to say? Safe to say. Yeah. If I could see it, I could build it and I could do it. That's the rock, if you will. Yes. Yeah. I and that's some, with everything. Yeah. Um, I'm, I can relate with what the gentleman, Michael, right? Yes. Butcher, yeah, I can relate with him because I'm very much the, I have ideas, but like I need a rocket fuel person. A hundred percent. So... <laughs> You know, so we did a lot of things together and it was the right place, right time. At that time, he bought a building in Nashville and he has a butcher and bee now in Nashville. In Nashville, he's about to open his third um, location there. He has another business called Redheaded Stranger, um, which is partnership with Brian Weaver, who is was his chef that he hired for Butcher and Bee Nashville. And they together are opening up another restaurant. So Michael is continuously... Um, evolving. But, you know, the two things that also that I didn't mention when I was working for the festival, one of the first things that I had to do was American Express year two was a sponsor. And they have something called trade day, which the only other place that they do it is in Aspen. And truly, it is workshops for the trade to be able to sit in on. And I always thought that it was such a great idea, except good idea, bad execution, that when we were doing it so early on, again, in the festival years, year two, there wasn't a ton. The people that all of the different topics that were taking place that were for the industry, the industry people were so in the weeds that they could not come and sit through any of the content. And we didn't have enough people that were coming in out of town to sit through that. But I always thought that it was such a great idea. So that was like seed number one to that was what planted. What was the great deep. idea? Really just like having off. something educational conversations for the hospitality community. Do you know who you're talking to right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I can totally relate to that. And because I was like, I started Restaurant Unstoppable Network, which was exactly that. Just trying to create a space for people to come and share knowledge with each other. Right. But the the biggest challenge for me, getting people to show up. Right. And I don't know what, I don't know if it's just because 
like you said, people are just are so weeded all the time. And they don't, when they do have free time, they're like, do I really want to spend it? Like learning like that takes energy. That takes, that's work. Learning's work. It's not easy to learn. You know, you have to be willing to. Yeah. And I think the and other interested. part of, I wonder sometimes too, if like people who gravitate towards the, the hospitality industry are just generally more hands on face on in person type people. They don't, I'm, I can speak for myself. I don't enjoy looking at a computer screen. I even enjoy looking at a phone, try to text me, try to have a conversation with me digitally. That's not a phone call or a zoom meeting. Like I'm the worst, you know, it's just not how we're wired. All the people in the restaurant industry are dyslexic. I'm dyslexic. I don't like to read. If I can have a conversation with somebody, it's just how I process, you know, right. I wonder if there's a lot of that in our industry. I think that in this case, specific case, that it was truly because people were weeded and they could not physically be able to get to these different conversations. Because these weren't digital at this point. These were in person. No, this was in person. So they're so busy prepping for all of these events that they're part of. And they just physically could not get there. So that was like seed, honestly, one to what later became fab. Seed number two was when I worked with Michael, he loved being able to, and we would bring people in to educate our team about different things, finances, you know, healthcare, Culture, everything, all the things that you have to be good at. That's not cooking to be successful. Right. In business. And yeah. he also had everyone take their turn to do bill pay to see like how in debt we were (laughs) and like, are we going to be able to pay everyone, you know, right now and understanding being able to punch in clock in clock out on time and what that extra cost is. So there was like a lot of things that he did. And I always thought that that was really amazing of him. So at that time, you know, we were, we had this event, which was then the start of like my next iteration called Bad Bitches. And there was the chef that was going to be leaving and Stu Tracy, who was the inventor of the Chick-fil-A cauliflower, by the way, really? sandwich, yes. And I've never had it, but it sounds good. I haven't um, either, but I've never had fast food. Wow. So I can't I say that I've never had fast food. <laughs> I know. I should save that if you're going to ask me one of those questions later. <laughs> um, but so Stu was going to be leaving and we had, I said to him, who do you want and for like this final dinner? And there were a number of people that he had requested that were chefs in in Charleston. And um, so we facilitated this dinner. And there were two women that were back of house, um, Sarah Adams, who had been working at FIG at the time, and Kelly Kleisner, who was pastry chef for, um, for Indigo Road. And the other chef that we were going to be putting in place was Chelsea Conrad, who was going to be taking Stu's place. And Sarah and Kelly had called and said, we should do a dinner, an all women's dinner um, with Chelsea. And I was like, that's a great idea. But there are so many women that are in this industry Like, who should we invite and who should we involve? So as all good things happen over a couple of glasses of wine, we got together (laughs) and the idea evolved. And I thought about maybe we should look at this and do a fundraiser and raise money for women that are in this industry to be able to push themselves further in their career. 
and maybe we should showcase women's rise in this industry from their home kitchens and do it by the decade, um, starting in the 50s to the present. So the three of us worked on these events and became very cultish because we all had, I don't think Sarah was working at that time, but Kelly and I were both working. So it's Sarah, Kelly, Chelsea, and yourself. Not Chelsea. Chelsea, just Sarah and um, and Kelly Got and it. myself. And so the first dinner we did was at Bertram B and the decade was the fifties. So the food, the music, we had a um, female guest chef. Any jello molds? And totally (laughs) jello molds. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And so we sold tickets to it. um, And we, I wound up and I was also in charge of kind of raising money And so the first person that there was, we had a sponsor and said, I'm going to match your ticket sales. So all of a sudden we were getting double in and for, you know, for this event and we partnered with a nonprofit that was able to be the keeper of our money. And, you know, I figured maybe we'd raise like $18,000 and we wound up raising, you know, around 60 or so thousand dollars, um, by doing just kind of seven very quick events. That's amazing. Um, so we did fifties, seven events in what time period? So started in April and had our last event, April, May, June, July, August, September. So one a month and one a month. month. Yeah. 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 You're able to raise $60,000. That's amazing. And where did this money go to? So we had an application process and we awarded women um, and women applied to it that were in this industry and we funded a variety of different things. And since everyone's needs financially were different, we didn't kind of pigeonhole it into just we're giving out, you know, a thousand dollars to everyone. It was ranged from two hundred and fifty dollars to five thousand. Wow. So we had paid for first level or various um, sommelier certifications, nice. um, chocolate making class, culinary school, podcasting. Nice. Stephanie Bird, who runs this or who has the, the Southern Fork, started her podcast from that. Nice. Um, and when was this? Where are we on your timeline? This so, is after you you depart the wine and food festival. So like this is like what 2017. So this is no. So this is 2015. Okay. So this is just as podcasting starting to come out or really starting to explode. Exactly. Yeah. I don't even think it was exploding at that time. I think people were like still. It was exploding, but just not in the restaurant industry. The restaurant industry was way behind the curve. Yes. Yeah. And so we ran these events and kind of like all good things, the band broke up. And, but I was really taken with the reaction when we awarded people money and they were so appreciative that someone believed in them and that were willing to invest in them. And that's when I thought about it. And this was in 2016. And I said, gosh, I wonder if I should create this curriculum, this educational curriculum And that women can be able to like and create this event that people can come to and be able to gather together, to network, to learn from one another and bring in 
and I, and so again, I was asking, so I created this curriculum and from all the people I met throughout the festival and beyond that, I sent them an email and said, I'm thinking about doing this. And this is men and women because I need the male buy-on and saying, this is what I'm thinking about. What do you think about it? So this is men and women meaning you're reaching out to men and women to find out their thoughts. Um, like if I was going to create an event for women, an educational event for women and about the business of the hospitality industry, what do you think? And we're going to take a break to thank our sponsors. We're going to come right back to find out what people thought. This episode is brought to you by Ovation. Creating a great guest experience is the goal of every restaurant every time. But the ways to find out what's actually happening with the guests are terrible. Long surveys are annoying. Nobody likes to take them. Table touches aren't scalable. And every negative review costs you 30 new customers. Ouch. That's where Ovation steps in. Ovation gets happy guests to leave positive reviews, unhappy guests to share what happened, and it gives you specific ideas to improve. Using a simple two-question survey, guests either click a text message they get after placing an order or scan a QR code to easily answer, how was your experience? Happy guests leave five-star reviews and can be invited back with automated text marketing. And unhappy guests share privately what went wrong so you can resolve your concerns in real time. Then the magic happens. Ovation takes all the public reviews and all the Ovation private feedback and analyzes them in a single simple view so you can know exactly what to fix and where. It's frictionless for your guests, easy for your managers, and powerful for you. If you're interested in actionable guest feedback, visit OvationUp.com slash Unstoppable. Unstoppable listeners get $100 off their setup fee. What are you waiting for? That's OvationUp.com slash Unstoppable. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash R S. 
RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And what did people say? So you're going to all these people, men and women, sharing the vision. This is what I want to do. Educational program for women in hospitality. And they said... Whenever it's not someone else's money, they always think it's a great idea. <laughs> well, uh, you know, that's actually an interesting point. And it came up in my mind, not to get too sidetracked, but I think that people lean on restaurants too much for money. And you see it all the time. All the time. And I, I don't want to get too derailed, but like just recently, and I won't mention names or like the, the associations I know that are a part of this, but in New Hampshire, there's this this pedicab thing that they're trying to get started and they're looking to restaurants to sponsor the pedicab. And I'm like, is this a sponsorship or is this a donation? Cause if it's a, if it's a sponsorship, you better be able to calculate what their ROI is going to be. Totally. Like it's not a sponsorship unless they're making money from it. And if it's, if they're just, if you're just looking for money, call it a donation because you can't, bait and switch people and restaurant industries are operating on thin margins and the cost of goods are going up and there's an impending recession on the horizon and you're looking for restaurants to essentially fund your pedicab operation like come on like what you're gonna put their name on the back of the pedicab and they're gonna get five thousand dollars of additional revenue from that that little sign in the back of pedicab no it's not gonna happen anyway i kind of let them know what i was thinking i was like don't like you're expecting too much from these restaurant operators do you agree? Like, so you do agree? I, oh, yeah. absolutely. And like restaurant operators are gonna say yes because they're hardwired to support their community and do everything. Like I think we need to really start being considerate of these operations that have very small margins. <laughs> well, I think you saw a lot of that during the pandemic when these restaurants really then who have always been so generous um, in their communities where they needed help. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a big push in whether it's gift cards or anything, just to give them some cash flow at that time. And then, I mean, people just didn't miss a beat by asking them to start donating again. And it's like, you know, some people did not get like that amount of money from, you know, the PPP. Yeah. And um, that they really are trying to actually make up and you know do all of those things that everyone promised at that time so they loved your idea as long as it wasn't their money so they did and i put together like a small um and again coming from nonprofits, i knew i did not want my workshop to be a nonprofit. Um, why not because i didn't want a board to tell me what to do Hmm. like that's really the bottom line i also don't think there's anything wrong with being profitable Well, just because you're a nonprofit, this is also the big misconception. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be profitable. It doesn't mean not profit. I mean, you're just not not for profit. You don't exist for profit. Exactly. So Um, I am for profit, but I'm extremely philanthropic. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's just conscious capitalism. A hundred percent. Like, like, why do we get it complicated? You know, just like, just be generous. Exactly. You know, and do like have a purpose behind your business. Exactly. Yeah. So and be true to that. Yeah. And so I pulled together a group here where we met once, which were different business owners, and just to get their idea and their take on it. And I made very few, like, kind of 
you know, corrections to so it. So what was the pitch? Like what was the model when you first started? So when I first started, um, I had fab as two different tracks and it would be like a one Oh one and a two Oh two. And so like educational tracks, educational tracks, depending upon where you were in your career. One Oh one's freshman, freshman. And in. then two Oh two is, you know, upper level management and ownership. Yeah. And we would then roll your content out for you. You would go through 10 over the course of the two days, 10 different panels of content over the two days. And because even though the topics could be very similar, you could talk about PR or you could talk about HR. HR is a better example. HR is very different in the employee or in the um person that is looking to open a business opposed to the business owner. Those are very different things. Say that that the person looking to open the business versus the business owner. Yes. Cause they still are learning about, um, what they should be doing. Like so you're looking, the, somebody who's looking to start a business exactly. versus somebody who's been in business. Yes. Got it. Um, so the process, so HR means different. It's a different story. For it's different. If you're an employee, yeah. let's say you're looking at HR very differently. It's like opening a restaurant isn't the same as running a restaurant. Exactly. So I wanted, so, and then it was, what am I going to call this workshop? You know, that was like the big, the big thing. And, um, I worked with a local company and I wish I had some of the names that they came up with because they truly made no sense. (laughs) And I stuck to my gut and I called it fab. What does that stand for? Um, it's an acronym, so it could mean a lot of things, could mean food and beverage, but in this case, it means females in business. Got it. But then it could mean females are baller, females are badass, females... Have fun with it. Yeah, and it's just, exactly. It's a fabulous... Exactly. Work. And you have to actually, in coming up with the name, that was a it's whole... It's feminine too, I feel like. It's feminine, and, but it was also, it was such a learning exercise then because you, when you come up with a business, especially when it's a workshop, you have to use it in the name. You know, one of the names they came up with was Hummingbird and they, and I was like, Hummingbird? I was like, is it a birding event? Is it a, you know, is it a cake making? And, you know, then you have to use it in, in a sentence. So are you going to the Hummingbird co- like workshop? I'm right. like, that makes no sense. Are you going to Fab? period. Like, yeah, that made sense. So, um, and then it was like stylization of how you want your font and how you want to feel and what you want to do. So I loved that process. So then it was, okay, now I've got this great idea. I've got some topics that I think are really good topics, but now I need voices and I need speakers. And the, and it was time for me to start asking people, and it's definitely a theme. It's a theme. <laughs> and the first two people that I asked that said yes were Dana Cowan, and who had been the editor-in-chief, was still actually at Food & Wine magazine. Um, and she had been there 21 years. And she said yes. And then Barbara Lynch, who's See, in Boston. A, a little thing here, like you could have seen Food & Wine as a, like an enemy or a competition, like because you, your history with wine and food, right? But like, I think it's it's important to like put the little like minuscule like things behind us, like the little petty things behind it's us, bullshit. yeah, and just move forward, yeah. right? And just surround yourself because like, if you if you hang on to that stuff, you're you're holding yourself back from collaborating with great, you know, co- like what's the word I'm looking for? Um, collaborators, I guess. Just, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
So uh, those are the first two people. Dana, Dana Cowan and, and Barbara Lynch. Lynch. I would love to get Barbara Lynch on this podcast. So just throwing that out there. Yeah. Uh, she's been on my radar because I, I live in New Hampshire. She's only okay. an hour away yeah. from me. Um, I love what they're doing. She's incredible. Yeah. yeah. She's incredible. What she is, um, what she has put together and what she has done is really am- yeah, amazing. Yeah. She's impressive. Yeah. So, so you have food and wine, Dana, uh, Barbara Lynch, uh, Lynch, um, restaurant group, Barbara Lynch restaurant group, right? Right. Yeah. Um, like what happens then? So at what? that point I'm feeling really yeah. good about myself and powerhouses. and powerhouses. Yeah. Obviously this is, must be a good idea. And then I have to also seek sponsors. And so this is in 2016 as the yeah. timeline. So 2016, I have this great idea. I start, you know, and I, and I want Vab to be about not the recognizable names because I want it to be about the cogs in the wheel that make up this industry. So those people that you will never hear. You know, we about. have a lot of common, you know, I, I love what you're doing. Like this is truly resonating with me. Yeah, there's power. Like there's people out there that they, they put so much time and energy into getting the press. And that's all we hear from sometimes is people that, that have the resources to get the press. Right. But they're not a true representation of the industry. No. And that's all that the main, that, that the, the most people see is like this top tier of individual, the, the celebrities, the chef celebrities of the world. And it's right. like, that's not the industry. That is a, like a, a thin level, like layer of crust on the top of the industry. Right. But the rest of the industry is like nowhere near, like they don't represent like people. I think it creates a false representation of what the industry is. A hundred percent. And they're not the ones that are, they're the figureheads of the company and their position just has changed. They used to be the workhorse. And, you know, I think it's, it depends upon what you want from your business. Do you want to be that person who becomes, you know, known in the community, known nationally. I mean, there are different trajectories that everyone could take. Or do you want to just stay true and just have your restaurant or your business for for your same purposes of you creating that? Like somewhere along the line, it changes. And so, you know, for me, I want to be able to get the workhorses that are in the business. And so that could be HR, that could be PR, that could be the person doing CPG, that could be your, you know, attorney. Um, So you have to look at a business and look at the makeup. Who do you need to touch to be able to, um, the technology professional? professional to be able to like get your business on track, um, your finance person. I mean, so these are the people that you need to surround yourself around to, um, to be able to create your business, the integrators, right? Yeah. So, and I wanted fab to be this, Oh shit moment. You know, I didn't want someone that was like, my grandmother made the best peach pie. So I'm going to open up a peach pie bakery and serve peach pie all the time. Well, you're going to fail. Yeah. And you, number one, peaches are not available you year read the round. E-myth, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like peaches aren't available. You're not going to hire your fa- friends. You can't go and party with them. It's yeah. just not going to work. You have to understand your taxes. You have to understand real estate. You have to understand architecture. I like to joke around sometimes that like our mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. And there's should be like a subtitle underneath there, and also talk you out of doing it, right? Because <laughs> or educate you yeah, to make those decisions. Exactly. 
exactly. Like, like giving you a real perspective of what it is to be a restaurant owner and to share these stories and right. to also inspire you and let you know it is possible. Right. But when you hear about all the horror stories, maybe it isn't what you want to do. Right. You know, like when you get a true representation of what it is to be a restaurant owner. Right. So, um, so that was, you know, so I, so 2016, I get a, I had about 30 speakers, probably 22 of those were national. And then the other eight were from Charleston. And that was the other big thing for me. I did not want to focus just on, um, Charleston talent, I wanted it to be national because I wanted it to be a national audience. And I think going back that people in their communities sometimes tire of those same voices talking that they don't feel the need to be able to come out and listen to them, you know, again. So there was something fresh. um, So I, you know, go through everything. And the same time I moved my mom from New York here and moved to here in January of 2016. And so, you know, I'm building fab and it's a ton of work. I mean, a ton of work. Um, and then I was very fortunate, um, in September of that year, um, there was a person that moved from New York. Her name was Hope Troop. And she used to work at Stone Barnes and um, Irene Hamburger, who used to be the VP of operations there, had contacted me and said, um, would you hope and her future husband are going to be moving? Can she reach out to you? And I said, yes. And Hope loved what my what I was building and said, I'd love to come on and, and help you. And she did. And without her, I don't think Fab ever honestly would have taken off. What did she bring to the table? You know, she brought, I know my, I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses and I'm not afraid to, to say that. I think it's important to be like to accept your weaknesses. So many people are afraid to face their weaknesses because they're ashamed of it. And like, they don't want people to know my weak, like, God forbid people know my weaknesses. Right. Lay your weaknesses out on the table. Like people need to be aware of like, I mean, we're not all perfect, you know, like to be, to know your strengths and know your weaknesses and to be just like, here they are. Like lay them out is a super powerful thing because it saves time and energy. Oh my God. I mean, I just never would have done it. And Hope had this, you know, organizational aspect, which we both shared and, but she was, she had such knowledge about the people that were in different communities too, doing really amazing things because she loved, she worked in this industry. Yeah. This is her life career. And, but she also wasn't scared to social media. I can post pictures all day long of my own personal like life, but I had this vision for fab and she totally executed it. And so she wasn't scared to kind of take the time to understand social media and graphics and do something that she had never done before. And she did an incredible job with it. And so she was truly such a partner in, um, in the creation of fab and certainly in the first couple of years and so here we are, you know, I coming from the festival mind of when tickets are going to go on sale and it's going to be unbelievable. The press we got in the first year was amazing, national press. 
And I felt really unstoppable. Nice. And so here we are. It is the turn of the calendar. Tickets are going to go on sale in January on like the 17th. And my mom gets sick and she has to be hospitalized. And here I am like balancing this first, you know, um, workshop and, um, and tickets go on sale and they're due to go on sale at 11 o'clock. And I'm like telling hope, like, watch out, like, <laughs> like shit is going to go down right now. And the minute 11 o'clock happens, we sell a ticket and then that is all we sold. What? Did something crash? That day. That's what I was wondering and hoping, <laughs> but no, we just sold one ticket. This is the second year. This that this was year one. Oh, year one. Okay, okay. Because I thought you already did it and you had it. No, of- so 2016, I took the time. You had to build it, so it, it takes it. a year to build. Got it. So I built it in 2016 to launch in 2017, and then in January was when tickets went on sale. The website went live. Tickets went on sale. Sponsors were announced. Um, scholarship application um, was put up and hotel information. One ticket sold. One ticket. How many did you end up selling the entire time? And I said, what the fuck? I totally, <laughs> what was I thinking? Why did I the think this was like, starts oh to my kick in. God. I was like, this is like the dumbest thing I ever had <laughs> thought about. And we wound up selling about probably selling and giving away probably about 200 or so tickets. And it so was a total 20, 200 tickets went out a combination of selling and giving away. Yeah. What was the split? Um, hard to remember, but a, it was probably like a 75, 25 split sold of 75 versus, sold. Okay. But it's still a good start for your first year. That's what that's, 200 people at an event like that's huge that's a good event that's a successful event and um it is and it was and it was challenging i mean it was um my mom died in that march and yeah. she lived here and it was really challenging I bet. um two weeks after she died i did my first pop-up in new york at white mustache yogurt facility in red hook and I was so raw that I was going through the streets of New York crying, and I'm not a crier. Um, and it was really, really hard. And then, you know, kind of fast forward, um, the day of her birthday, which was a month before Fab, May 10th, my son called me and was diagnosed with hypotropic cardiomyopathy. And which is, um, if you've ever heard of athletes just dropping dead that on the field that appear to be, you know, healthy otherwise, um, they have an enlarged heart muscle Mm. and, um, and there's not enough, you know, blood flowing through and he was diagnosed with that. And so I had to fly. He's okay now. He is stable you know it's one of those things he has a pacemaker defibrillator um and so a lot for a mom to hear it's a lot and um and he so i had to fly there to be able to set up and meet with his doctors and for him to be able to have surgery so you got a lot going on this is a lot going on and this is all in the first year this is all in the first year and i'm like is like is someone telling me this is not a great idea (laughs) like that i shouldn't be doing this 
And I was such a, so, and fab happens year one and it's amazing. Like the energy and the, um, the power of it, of having all of these women together was extraordinary. And I was almost a bystander at my own event because I was so lost in my own. I mean, after fab, I was going to go to Atlanta to, for my son to have surgery and, you know, and you know that my mom died. It was just, you just want to get it through it. It was just right. And, um, and it was insane. And, but it was truly everything that I ever had wanted it to be. I wanted it to be inspirational. I wanted it to be magic. I wanted, Um, people to have this incredible connectivity. I wanted them to develop their networks. I wanted them to maybe get a mentor. And all of that happened. So, and the first two years took place at the College of Charleston. So now I'll go back to the feedback portion that you said sometimes it's really hard to listen to and digest when it's your baby. Um, I send out a survey and I take everything that comes in a hundred percent seriously. And I want to know, I don't put fab on for me. I put it on for everyone that attends. So if I'm going to send a survey out and not listen to it and be able to take the things that make sense and put it back into it, then shame on me. Mm -hmm. And so I asked the speakers for their opinion because obviously I'm asking for them for different things and then the attendees for their opinion. So from year one to two, most of the changes that went in were from the speaker perspective. Um, from year one, I will say the attendees always want to create their own journey. They didn't want me to lay out their content. Their so, yeah. you know, they, it was, you know, kind of FOMO. It was like, what are they doing in yeah. session 202? Should I be in there? Yeah. And I, couldn't understand and appreciate that. So, you know, but I wasn't ready to make that change yet. We didn't have enough kind of curriculum. Well, we didn't have enough grass under our feet yet to like make that change. It it. was only one year. It would take a lot of lifting to restructure the whole. Exactly. And I want to see, you know, what would happen year two with all the changes that I was putting in. Now, if there was something that came from the attending perspective that made complete sense, I, of course, put it that change in. So from year one to two, again, people were like, this is amazing, like, love it. So that was 2017 and 2018. So the major shift, and we were creating 20 panels of content, and everything was in a panel state. So year three was seismatic shift in, in fab. We changed locations. Um, we moved to something, a place called the William Aiken house and the American theater. We created, we went from 20 panels of content to 34 panels of content. We upped our speaker count starting from year one from 30. Now we were in the fifties and, um, and it was insane. I bet. What was the feedback for content that people wanted? Like, how did the content evolve 
based off of like user demand? So, you know, at the end of the day, fab's a business workshop and there are certain things about business that aren't going to change. You know, when you talk about business plans, when you talk about P and L's, when you talk about HR, when you talk about PR. So there are certain things that you need as a business when you're looking for financing, um, about developing culture. Yeah. Um, I know a lady, she's just coming into my mind right now and I need to put you in contact with her, but she does, um, pest control. Oh, have you done pest control work? No, yet? that's fascinating. Let me, let me put you in touch with her. Sorry. I had to get that. Yeah. Out, I just, yeah. I yeah. Sorry. Keep um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a issue for restaurants. It's but like, an issue. How many, she is a pest geek. I'm telling you, it's weird. She loves creepy crawlies. You have to be a pest. Geek. <laughs> yeah. But she's, she's, her name's escaping me right now and it's killing me, but she's so knowledgeable. Like you will learn how the, the weirdest things, but anyway, sorry. I totally no, this conversation. That's, that's <laughs> fascinating. But, but there are all these unique positions yeah. and, you know, and companies and businesses that you need to be able to, you know, to be able to hire, to be able to run your business. And there's so many satellite businesses adjacent to the restaurant industry that aren't restaurants, but right. they exist to serve restaurants and they're just specialists. Right. So there's so much you need to know to be a restaurant owner that it just, it just spins opportunity for like specialists. I feel like also like the best partnerships are also someone that really, it's really hard to be a solo owner because of the abundance of work that it takes to run a restaurant. And, you know, having someone like perfect example is let's say fig in, in Charleston. And there are so many, I mean, also James who, you're going to be um, interviewing, um, having someone to be able to have that, you know, but for Fig, Mike and his partner, Adam, Adam runs the whole front of the house and Mike runs the back of the house. And it's really nice to be able to have that partnership, to be able to create that balance of workload and being able to tackle certain things. Um, Because people don't really realize especially when they're on such a shoestring budget to be able to open something up, um, what they need to be able to accomplish and be able to be successful. Undercapitalization is the number one reason why restaurants fail. They don't have the runway. They don't know. They don't realize how much money you're going to burn and how long that's going to be happening until you start bringing money in. Well, and then also when you talk about, I mean, we have, you know, construction people and that are part of fab. We have architects and you need to know how to talk the talk. And because if you're going to meet with someone, you know, we've had real estate people involved because you need to understand how to talk that lingo. You need to understand what, you know, what the terms mean. Mm-hmm. And you need to understand, which I think a lot of people found out during the pandemic when they really looked at their leases yeah. and they finally read that. Exactly. How screwed they were. Right. And so you need to have all that knowledge before you're actually going to be going into something. And then you have to understand the cost of a build out. And opening restaurants, not the same as running restaurants. No, I, I always say this. That's why I love talking to people who specialize in opening restaurants. Cause it's just like, if you want to open a restaurant, don't go to work for people who are running the best restaurants. Go to people who are in growth mode. Right. And go open restaurants for them. Totally because, different. Yeah. It's a different piece. I mean, we even have sessions on like two and under, um, because two and under and over two, are very different in right. what you're looking at. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's a lot of how I think when I'm structuring content, it's like how big is your company based off like size. Right. Cause like there's like, like two between two and five, it's about the same. But then when you go above five, it changes. Then again, when you go above 10 or nine or 10, it changes again. Like, and, and then when you go above 20, it changes again. And when you're changing cities yeah. and trying to actually manage it, yeah. because all of these places, you know, I remember opening up butcher and being Nashville and looking and luckily, Husk, who had started in Charleston, um, opened up a location in Nashville. Yeah. And I remember I remember talking to them about what a cluster it was getting a liquor license. And because they are, were two different licenses for beer and wine and for liquor, and like how what a challenge it was dealing with Tennessee. There are so many things that will put you out of business when you open that you just would have never considered. Right. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's de- There's a million ways to die in the restaurant industry. A hundred percent. I mean, so you got to talk about all of them. You got to create that awareness. Um, so where I can't believe we're already an hour and a half of recording time into this. Doesn't it go by so fast? Like, I love my job. When, <laughs> if you have a job and your day goes by fast, you're in, the right place. You're in the right place. Yeah. It's crazy how fast these conversations go. Um, I want to know where's fab today. So fab today at this exact moment in time that we are speaking in, um, where are we? The 28th of March. Um, we tickets went on sale. This is year seven. Although you never know that pandemic really kind of like, am I really in, it's like dog years or I don't know, because we virtually did fab, um, in 2020, we did not do it in 21 and then we brought it back in 22. So am I like year five or am I year seven? So I call it seven. So we are in year seven. Um, tickets went on sale March 4th because March 4th is a um, day that you are supposed to march forth and do something and invest in yourself. So I thought it was appropriate to always use that um, after actually the first two years as as our ticket launch date. And we sold out in 11 days, um, which is... It's a lot better than 2016. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anything was better than 20. But it's also a lesson that it yeah. takes time to build things. You yes. know, like it takes time. Don't quit if it doesn't go exactly the way you hoped on day one. Just do it better on day two. You and have to listen. Do it better on day three. Yes. You know, just keep showing up and getting better. Um, exactly. You're an inspiration. I do want to talk... Uh, I want you to be a voice for women right now in the restaurant industry. I mean, I think if there's a person to speak for women in the restaurant industry, who better than you, you know, behind this organization. So many people. Right. So many people, but. But I'll give it a swing at the bat. So like, what, what do we need to know? What is, I I know the focus of fab is on educating women in business and connecting women in business, networking, socializing women in business. But is there an overarching, like, uh, like narrative of like what needs to change in the hospitality industry, how, how the hospitality industry can be better and more inclusive. Like what, what do we need to know to make a change? I mean, there's all of that content. I mean, you know, we have, we try to create the content that's relative to every year. We seem to be going through different, um, different narratives and different um, things that the restaurant industry is striving to um to be able to accomplish you know we went on to you know 
diversity, equity, inclusion, and culture, and trying to create that. Um, we were talked last year. I mean, the one thing about Fab is you have to understand it rests on my two pillars that, and it's the only thing about Randy that you will find in Fab. The two pillars of Fab are zero bullshit and total transparency. So that's how I create a fab. And for every speaker that comes in, if you are not going to give it your full, honest, I don't want any, I want you to walk over the hot coals, tell us how you got over them. And I want you to share that with everyone that is sitting there. And, but I don't want you to ever forget what your journey was because that is exactly what has made you. Mm. And so, um, so I feel with women and changing this industry, and I think that it starts with so many male owners too, and female, I mean, but it is really being able to listen to your team, really being able to give them the tools to be able to do their job successfully, which in turn, when you talk about ROI earlier, that is the ROI. You want it to be a culture that people um, are respectful of. You want to be able to respect those um, that are working for you. They are not your friends. They are your staff. They are not. Everyone wants to call family. Um, And I think that you have to be able to separate those things. Um, I think you have to run a very professional um, business And I think that people now are also looking for, you know, what your beliefs are, you know, what is your positioning in your community? Um, What do you want to give back? What can we do together? And I think people want to be able to be more of a part of where they are. And so I feel that anyone that has attended FAB, goes back richer, goes back more excited. And I don't expect anyone to send a team member to FAB without sitting down with them when they come back. If someone's sending me and said, Randy, I would love for you to, if like it would thrill me for business owners to be like, I know of this workshop that I feel that you would love to go to and I want to send you. Yeah. And when you get back, I want to sit down with you for an hour and a half and hear all about your experience. And then what can we take from there to be able to put in to this business? I want you to do staff. People could do staff training for days, for weeks. I mean, yeah. yeah. So I feel that, um, yeah, I mean, that is always been my intention for people to really be able to walk away with tangible goods to be able to to bring back to um, their own places of business or um, and to walk away with the network that if you're debating on a POS system, you know, remember those people who were sitting at that round table with you. And that's how you're creating your network of people to going back to my uh, to ask you know, so yeah. giving you the resources that you need to be successful. Yeah. Randy, I've really loved today's conversation. Is there anything we did not discuss? Any message you'd like to get out, thought you'd get out, anything before we wrap up? Women need to invest in themselves. 
they need to um, understand the priorities. They need to um, ask their bosses. They need to make it time in their schedule. And if not for fab, for anything that's going to going to do that. Do you think that that is a big reason why there is inequality in the workplace? Is women just don't stand up for themselves? They don't ask. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. They could do a better job. And, you know, male owners could do a better job of supporting as well. Yeah. And female owners. I've loved today's conversation again. I'll echo that. Um, Thank you so much. Um, This is usually where I have my guests call somebody out. Um, You behind the scenes have been calling a lot of people out to be a future guest in the show. I I, want to recognize you in this moment for being so supportive of Restaurant Unstoppable. You were so generous with your network. Uh, You gave me a list of 26 people. (laughs) And I was like, this is amazing, Randy. Can you narrow it down? Because I'm overwhelmed. (laughs) Like, who do I talk to? Like, who who really represents Charleston? And you gave us a a list of six. I think we were able to get five of those those names that we did really well. I just want to make sure everyone knows that, you know, restaurant stoppable. I, I don't try to steer the ship of restaurant stoppable. I really am doing what I can to let the industry steer the ship by talking to people like you who are in the industry, who know who to talk to and then listening to them and letting the industry really help me uncover the, these, these hidden gems of people who have stories and inspiration. So thank you for your support. Happy to help. Um, but do we want to echo any of those called out guests right now? Do like do you, do you remember the, <laughs> the list know, that you have? Any, maybe somebody who's not on my list that you think who's on that list of 26 that I should go to next. I think we have room for like two more interviews. Well, I know that Carolee could not yeah. um, be part of it. You know, there are honestly, there are so many um, on that list of, of 26. I wish there, you know, Charleston. We need more ladies. We need more ladies. And there's a lot of ladies that are doing pop-ups. And I know. love that world. You know, I talked to a lot of people, like when I first started this podcast, that the vision was to go to the best in the industry, the most accomplished, the most wealthy, you know, like because we associate nah. those things. But I've evolved over time to realize that that's unpractical, you know, because such a small percentage of people do make a fortune in this industry. And it's better to represent the reality and to to have the right objectives, the right goals that will help you become successful. Because the people who do get rich in this industry aren't trying to get rich. It's because they're the best at everything else. Right. Right. So I don't know where I was going with this train of thought, but Uh, pop ups. I love talking to people just getting started because that's more relatable. Opening a restaurant 30 years ago isn't the same as opening a restaurant today. No. It's, it's a completely different game. A whole So we can learn more through people who are going through it. So maybe rain check. If you can think of anybody, if you can think of anybody now, let me know. I will. All right, cool. Awesome. <laughs> um, how can we connect with you if we're interested in maybe attending Fab next year? I know you sold out for this year. We did. Um, Tickets will, you know, what we do, whether anyone's listening to this that is interested in being a speaker, um, we start that process, again, kind of like the festival, it's a year-round process. So we start that, the minute that fab ends, we totally dissect it. Not every speaker of ours is going to be coming back for the next year, not because we don't love them, but just because, again, there's certain contact. We... Part of the success is getting fresh voices. So we typically, out of the 70 speakers that we're going to have this year, half of those um, will not be coming back, and then the other half will, and then we will fill in new voices. You got Stephanie Robson, right? Yes. Okay, just making sure. Yes. She's pretty awesome. Anybody who I come across who I think would be amazing for you, you 
you better believe I'll be reciprocating all the help you've been giving me. This is just so grateful to have you. In our yeah. Room. I can't wait to yeah. hear about the pest control person. Oh my gosh. She's <laughs> awesome. I should look that up now. Um, um, but, um, but we start building out our content and our speaker deck from April. I mean, from August and we pretty much have that finalized in November and same thing as sponsors, social handles, websites is, this that? is fab. Um, CHS is our Insta. Um, this is fab.com is our website. And that name was Lori Joe Jensen, the pest control lady, Lori uh, Joe Jensen. <laughs> yeah. Episode 867. If you guys want to check that one out, but All um, right. she would be amazing for you. Um, great. Thanks Eric. Thank you, Randy. Randy, this is where I say thank you so much. And there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest, Randy Weinstein, for coming on and to kind of sharing a different perspective of the industry today. Uh, not our traditional guest, somebody who's going out there making an impact, bringing people together, sharing knowledge. This feels really familiar and I can get behind what you're doing. I, I think you're doing great work for the women in hospitality. And if you're a lady of hospitality and you are interested in attending these events, be sure to pay attention next year because these things sell out fast and uh, they're really putting on great programs over there. And um, I'm, a, I'm proud to spread the word about what's happening over at Fab. And I just want to say thank you again one more time to Randy Weinstein for being so helpful in helping us uh, you know, connect with leading restaurant tours here in Charleston. You just, you know, the market so well, and uh, I'm super excited to record the rest of these interviews. And if you're enjoying this podcast and you want more episodes just like this, please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel right now. If you head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable, you will find shorter versions of our podcast. 15 to 20 minute long versions of the podcast if you want more digestible content and we're also doing shorts uh, YouTube shorts that are super short uh, fun little snippets of the podcast and special thanks to Sam Hall for all the hard work over there you're doing a great job Uh, also you can support our sponsors you can use our affiliate links as a anytime a tool or service is recommended on the show just head over to the show notes and use those links and thank you in advance for using our links you can spread the word about Restaurant Unstoppable to anybody and everyone you know aspiring to be great in the restaurant industry. We need your help, guys. Uh, we need to get the word out there. We want every restaurant owner and every aspiring restaurant owner to know about this podcast. And then uh, I think as you're listening to this, we're wrapping up in Charleston. Next stop is maybe, I think, Kentucky and Philadelphia. Uh, that's in April. And then in May, we're going to be in Minneapolis in Chicago. So don't be shy. Reach out to us. Put some great people on our radar. And before we say goodbye, I just want to say thanks again to Sam Hall for the videography and social media. And thank you to Jared Parisi at Sumadre Podcast for the copywriting and editing. It takes an army. I'm so grateful for mine. That's it for today.